0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in In Conversation, a podcast from Oxford University Press, and today I'm happy to say that we have the good fortune of having Carol Dyehouse on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific book, Love Lives, From Cinderella to Frozen. I'd like to say by introduction, this was a really wonderful book for me to read because as I told, Carol in the pre-interview, I'm kind of in it. And one of the things that it brought to mind to me was the story of my mother. She was married in about 1960. uh, And then after she had myself and my sister, she was divorced when Mm -hmm. we were very young and she had to go to work. And throughout her life, she said she never wanted to work. She was a career woman, very successful. She was a teacher, but she, to the end of her life, she was like, I never planned to work. I never really wanted to work. And as you'll see, as we talk about the book, that my mother was not particularly unusual in that way. Um, So welcome to the show, Carol. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm older than you, Marshall. <laughs> I spent most of my.
0: <laughs> you don't have to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think it contextualises one's uh, one's attitude to history as well. You know, um, I'm looking back at, at my own mother, um, particularly, but yeah, myself. I I have been uh, an academic historian for the major part of my life, uh, teaching in universities and writing books. Most of my early work was. I hope, scholarly and respectable. Um, I wrote books on the history of women's education and women's work and family life. And then about 10 years ago, I thought, oh, I want to do something different. I want to write slightly less academic books. Um, Not that I didn't i mean i i still wanted to be scholarly but i wanted to to write books that would appeal to a wider market that weren't just uh, really pushing the boundaries of academic knowledge and i also wanted to have a look at bolder subjects so the first book that i wrote when i decided to um stop teaching was a book on glamour um and i wanted to look at glamour and all, how women actually thought of glamour from the 1930s on and what they considered glamorous, and to question the quite established feminist view, I think that glamour was oppressive to women. I wanted to look at, you know, at the the stars of the silver screen: Dietrich, Barbara Stanek, Clara Bow, people like that. They didn't seem very oppressed to me always, <laughs> and so I wanted to look at glamour. <laughs> I wanted to look at glamour as something which offered women a kind of power. Um, which enabled them to be more sexual, more in control of their sexuality um, and allowed them to to think about fur and feathers and perfume and slinky dresses. And even more important, I wanted to um, <laughs> to spend time in secondhand hands stores and and car boot sales they call it in in England I'm not so sure about in the US Um, and actually looking at the kind of material paraphernalia of glamour you know old fur coats old pearl necklaces um, hats with gardenias on them that kind of thing and I wanted to look at what glamour meant for women so I was very interested in women's dreams and then a more recent book I did the history of heartthrobs it's it's subtitled the history of women and desire that again was challenging the more conventional feminist view that women are always the object of desire i wanted to turn that round and make women the subjects of desire and look at their historical tastes in men um, so <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you look at what kinds of masculinity come in and out of fashion so again that was that was kind of opening up what historians don't always look at, which is the history of sort of dreams and desire um, and aspirations. Now, this recent book, this, this Love Lives book, is an attempt, it's a bit, it's a bold attempt, I mean, some would say it's overbold, um, overbold, to look at how women's lives have really changed since the Second World War from about 1945, 1950 to the present day. And there are so many ways in which women's lives today are sort of unrecognisable if we go back to the 50s. And that's what, I mean, it's, again, academic historians tend to take a small portion of that and look at it in detail. And what I wanted to do was bring it all together. Um, And so that's what got me into this book, a kind of desire to, to kind of, to to take a broad canvas and to look at the big shifts in women's lives since the 1950s. And I thought, well, one way of doing that would be to do it Um, by bookending, if you like, um, Women's Changing Dreams, between two massively, massively successful Disney films um, and look at popular culture a bit, and the two films are obvious from the title. I wanted to look at Walt Disney's Cinderella in 1950, which was so popular after the war in Britain and in the States. Um, And then to end the book in, in 2013, with the kind of massive impact of Frozen, which is so different. And I thought if you look at those two films, you, you get a measure of the shift in women's dreams and their hopes, really, for a happiness and a fulfilled life.
0: I think you've succeeded marvelously. It's a very readable book. I enjoyed it, it, it very much. So let's jump right in. The first chapter of the book has a what I think Found to be a very evocative title, "Cinderella Dreams." When men were an ending, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that that's a great title. Um, could you tell us what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I mean, in a sense, that's a clue to the to the ho- the biggest shift in the book. Um, because the fairy tale narrative is, as you know, you know, Cinderella, you go to whatever your problems, you know, life might be a bit kind of grim, you might have to do a lot of housework, you know, you might not have much money or hope. Um, and there might be problems with at home <laughs> with your family. But you go to the ball and you meet your prince and you live happily ever after. And the point about that is men are an ending because they end the narrative. Once you've got your perfect male, you don't have to do anything more. Um, that's your life sorted. And it's a slight, it's, well, it is a very instrumental view of what men are about because they're supposed to solve your life for you. You know, although I mean, I've met some wonderful men in my time, but they're not going to solve your life for you. But I think those 50s women were encouraged to think that they would. I mean, if you look, one of the big shifts in popular culture in the post-war world, particularly in, in America, is the massive, the huge development of um, magazines for teenage girls, um, They're romance comics, really. Um, There were just dozens and dozens and dozens in the States, and the one that I talk about quite a bit is called Cinderella Dreams because it it kind of encapsulates exactly what I'm talking about. In England, we have things like Roxy and Valentine and Boyfriend and Mirabelle. Um, And these illustrated magazines available everywhere for teenage girls were just really pushing the message at girls that they should meet Mr. Wright as soon as possible. If they hadn't met him by the time they were 21, they were on the shelf. And so you've got a situation where girls at school are panicking about meeting Mr. Wright or finding their prince. It gets pushed down and down. And and the notion that your life was ruined if you hadn't found the right man by the time you're 21 was really widespread. Everybody comments on it. sort of taken for granted that you had to meet him as young as that and of course it was crazy absolutely crazy and it sort of cut all sorts of other hopes in the bud um (laughs) and it put an enormous burden on men as well because you know in England um young men still had to do national service um I think you had a ballot system didn't you in the states um but Um, yeah (laughs) In England, young men had to do national service. So if you were a fairly well-off, a young man from a fairly aspiring or well-off home, then your youth was kind of pretty burdened anyway, because you had to go through high school, you had to kind of get your qualifications, you had to go to college, you had to get your professional training as a, you know, if you wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or or something less eminent, but, you know, still requiring training. And you also had to do your national service in Britain for two years. Um, so all these kind of young girls coming up determined to hunt you down. <laughs> so that they could marry before 21 uh, we're a bit of a threat to men as well.
0: (laughs) Um, you've reminded me of something I discovered at Smith college, which is a college not far from where I live in Northampton, Massachusetts. It's a very prominent women's college in the United States. It's been around for a very long time. It was founded in the second half of the 19th century. And I was looking through, um, yearbooks at, at Smith and it, it, tells you about the entering class and then it tells you about the exiting class and the exiting class is half as large as the entering class and half of the women did not graduate and I was like what happened to these people this is in the 1950s well they all got married yeah and they dropped out yeah yeah
1: exactly Yeah, (laughs) I mean the the dream of finding your prince by the time you're 21 I mean people girls work very hard at making that a reality and if you look at the figures I don't want to kind of dazed listeners with figures. But this one's so powerful, like, I can't resist quoting it. In If we look at Britain, um, in 1921, only 14% of brides were under 21, 14%. Um, in 1965, it had gone up to 40%. So 40% of everybody marrying that all the women marrying that year were under 21 so this dream of early marriage it was a reality it became a reality and i know it's the same in north america and that's why you have these dropouts because you know you can't value your education if everything else is telling you that mr right is the key to a happy future so i've you know i feel sorry for the women because they were It was horrible. They were desperate to find men. But I feel sorry for the men, too, because the women were
0: desperate to get them and tie them down. Um, If you don't mind, I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, maybe you could provide some of the statistics about the rate of marriage in the 1950s and the age of marriage and... And then maybe more generally, what women expected out of marriage? Marriage, and I should tell hmm. listeners that there's—I I, I won't get the name right, but I think it's called the National Observation Project or something. What's it called, Carol? I'm not sure. Um, this, yeah, the the, it's this large sociological. Yes. St- yes,
1: you mean the Mass Observation Project?
0: Yeah. Mass observation. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and so you have wonderful data on this stuff. Yeah. We don't have it in the United States, but yeah. if you could just talk a little. Yeah, I was going to say if you could just talk a little bit about statistics, rates of marriage, age of marriage, and so on and so yeah. forth, divorce well, rate, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. In the 1950s. Well,
1: um, in the fifties, as I say, um y- you know, more people were marrying than ever before after the war, but they were marrying younger and younger and younger. Um we know that these young, these really young marriages often didn't work, and that's why parents were unhappy about them. I mean, in England you had a a new trend in the late 50s, early 60s, which was elopement. I mean, you're not supposed to marry in England without parent, or well, you couldn't legally marry without par- um, your parents' consent. If you were under 21, you came of age at 21. After 21, you could marry without their permission. But because women were wanting to marry earlier, there was a, a tendency for young couples to run away. <laughs> they eloped and they went um to Scotland i mean the place everybody knows about is Gretna Green because in Scotland you could marry without your parents consent under under 21 now the interesting thing was that you know this this drift to young marriages was so powerful that social policy makers in england thought the trend was here to stay and it's quite clear if you look at government papers that um, the, the belief that young people were going to go on marrying younger and younger was what led to um, a parliamentary committee. Um, reconsidering what was called the age of majority. And at the end of the 1960s, the age of majority was in fact dropped to 18 from 21 to 18. Um, In the 50s, you didn't come of age until you were 21. And the gift shops and the greetings card shops would sell all these cards with a big silver key on. I don't know if you had this in the States, but you were supposed to get the key to the I don't think so. It was kind of symbolic. I mean, as soon as you were 21, your parents gave you a a greetings card with a big silver key on, and you were then officially classified as a grown-up. It was the the push for young marriages which led to um, the committee which decided to drop the age of majority to the age of 18, which is what happened at the end of the 60s. But the bizarre thing is, they were wrong, you see. They thought the trend was here to stay, but in the early 70s it went into reverse and people started marrying later and later and later or cohabiting and not getting married at all Um, but the committee that that was investigating it at the end of the 60s didn't didn't see that happening but that's what happened so the big question historically is what stopped this drift to early marriages and I you know as I say in the book I think it's just got to be the contraceptive pill it's got to have a
0: huge impact Mm -hmm. here um on yeah. to, on Let, let's come to that and in- mm. go, go yeah. ahead sorry i was i was going to say um uh, along the same lines can you talk a little bit about what women in the 1950s expected out mm. of marriage yeah. and what men expected mm. out of it
1: definitely well more i can more confidently talk about what what women expected i think it's you you know you can help me with it's an interesting question whether it is the same thing it wasn't the same thing um it was a it was a, a decade in which there were very conventional role stere- uh, role stereotypes and role expectations. The women would want a home of their own, and they want would want to stay at home. And as you referred to your mother earlier in in the in the recording, um, they wouldn't expect to go to work, and the men would not expect them to go to work either. So the women. Thought that they would stay at home, make a tidy house, start having children, da 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 da. And you know, there was a danger, I think, that men would see themselves as just instrumental to the woman's dream in that respect, although obviously some men want children too. Um, what men would have wanted is is more complex. I think sex is the main thing. I mean, <laughs> what the... <laughs> Wanted sex. I mean, both men and women wanted sex, and you know, without proper contraception, um, sex was only really permissible within marriage in the fifties. It was very limited. I mean, you know, gay sex was was illegal still. Um, You know, premarital sex was frowned upon. I mean, we don't really have that category now, do we? But there were huge discussions about whether premarital sex was wrong or moral or evil or criminal. Um, And, of course, insofar as it could lead to pregnancy, it was risky. And we know that women were terrified of illegitimate um, births um, at the time. I mean, you know, the the social shame associated with illegitimacy was massive. And we know also that men were terrified of getting women pregnant because then they'd have to do they'd have to to, um, engage in what was then called a shotgun marriage. You know, <laughs> your mm-hmm. girl's dad would be there with a shotgun, saying, "You know, you marry this woman or else." Um, so, I think you know what the expectation was that it, it would legitimise sex, it would give women a home and family, and it would provide men with some kind of you know stability. It was, and it segues into the American dream, doesn't it? Really, this is you know this suburban dream. Mm-hmm. Um, which can either go well or, as often as not, it went really badly and ended up with a sort of Stepford wife horror story, <laughs> you know, where mm-hmm. the women moon about the supermarkets and <laughs> you know, all the rest of it. Um, but in England, I mean, also, the, the idea of a home of your own was still not possible for a lot of people in the 50s because there was much more poverty and there was a shortage of housing and everything. And, you know, early marriages didn't often turn, often didn't turn out to be what women wanted for wealthier women it didn't either because the men would get bored and you know and <laughs> that would work and also you've got to remember a lot of these men have come back from fighting and you know it's quite difficult to settle down to a sort of humdrum domestic existence you know if you've been off fighting in the war um so it's a kind of crisis for masculinity too. I mean, people often say that the James Bond movies come out of that sense of male frustration at the boring suburban domesticity of the fifties. You know, the Bond fantasy, the mm-hmm. Bond fantasy. I'm hoping you can say something about that, more <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm about the farthest thing from James Bond you can possibly imagine, Carol. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm, I'm wondering, this is to anticipate a little bit, but I'm wondering how uh, concepts like love and fulfillment and support and intimacy, these are things that, again, I'm anticipating people say they want today out of marriage. Did women in the 50s want those things? Well, yeah, it's interesting. Um
1: I mean, I'm sure they did love and intimacy. And what was the other thing you said?
0: (laughs) Fulfillment.
1: Fulfillment, yes. My
0: partner will fulfill (laughs) me. Yes. Yes,
1: of course they would have wanted those things. The fascinating thing is that it was probably the wrong route. And that's, you know, again, one of the main themes of the book. I mean, one of the things that, when I've talked about the book in, in, in England, I mean one of the things that interviewers have often picked up on and they found horrifying is this survey that was done. Um, there was a survey done by two women academics at Birkbeck College in London, which is you know a very prestigious um, college. in the, In the nineteen fifties, they did this survey in the late nineteen fifties on what teenagers wanted, how the, you know what they were after in life, which addresses your question a bit. And when they interviewed, it was quite a big survey. When they interviewed the girls, um, half of what the girls said was entirely predictable. The girls wanted to be married by the time they were 21. Um, They wanted children and a nice home and a a caring husband. But then they started talking in a way that really freaked the interviewers out. because, (laughs) Because what they found was... a very large proportion, I think it's about a third, I'd have to check my own notes, Um, a large proportion of the girls then fantasised about the death of their husbands. (laughs) (laughs) What they did, they would imaginatively project into the future they would say, well, you know, my husband possibly died by then in a car accident or a sudden illness. And, you know, it was as if, I mean, the researchers, two women called Thelma um, Vanessa, and Joyce Joseph said it was almost as if widowhood and bereavement were part of the girls' ambitions. Um, And they were very disturbed by this. And what they could only assume was that the girls, what the girls had imagined wanting out of the men was a home and a family. And they wanted a male provider. But the the vision didn't go further than that. So once the man had given them those things, they didn't have a lot of use for him after that. There wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a bit praying like isn't it? But, you know, they didn't have a vision of, say, you know, collegiality or companionship in old age or or deepening love and fulfilment. The men were there for the purpose of providing them with a home and children in their imaginations. Now, look, I wouldn't, you know, these are girls at school, but it very much upset the researchers. They couldn't work out what was going on. And I, I think that comes back again to this idea of a man as an ending. It's, you know, it's what do you, what is the man there for? And, you know what i'm trying to trace in the book is a more optimistic vision i mean there's lots of things to not make you optimistic and you know we might 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 come back to some of those but it's a slightly more optimistic vision that perhaps heterosexual partnering at the end of um our period you know by by the 21st century Probably got a bit more expectation built into it. I mean, a woman doesn't just want a man to be a provider and a, a baby father. You know, she might actually want deepening intimacy <laughs> or kind of mm-hmm. you know collegiality or something like that, collegiality or you know other kinds of things. Um, it's a, a hopefully a richer version, and hopefully instead of seeing a man as an ending, you might see a relationship with a man as the beginning of something.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, One of the ironies uh, of history in this case is that uh, right as the Cinderella – I want to say myth, it's not really a myth – as the Cinderella story became popular uh, and was a model for people's lives, that that kind of demographic and economic ground was shifting underneath this sort of – play of ideas. And what I'm thinking about is the entry of women into the workplace, into higher education, and then attitudes and practices regarding sex, particularly contraception. So it, it survived past the moment at which it was relevant. Can you talk a little mm. bit about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping you're right. And I'm hoping I'm right that the Cinderella fairy story is is has gone past its sell-by date. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, what, what intrigues me about um, fairy stories and myths is that societies take up fairy stories and myths that suit present time conditions. I mean, the Cinderella story has been around. Some people would trace it right, right, right back, but it's certainly been around since you know Perrault and and sort of seventeenth century France and so on. Um, and you, it surfaces from time to time in the nineteenth century, but it really gets taken up big, big, big time in the beginning of the 20th century and i think that is because you know societies interpret and retell stories that have meaning for them and it fitted the demographic and the emotional conditions the cinderella story i mean it's it's um swings it's sort of chicken and egg isn't it i mean the disney thing did promote the Cinderella story enormously. I mean, all the spin-offs and everything, but it was already coming to the fore. You can see there was a kind of explosion in Britain of children's readers um, reading books and, uh, with the story in after the war. And so Disney's taking up something that's becoming very popular anyway. And in the States, I mean, I show in the book um, the way the Cinderella story permeates the culture in the 50s i mean even to the extent of shell petroleum um having an advertisement for petrol for goodness sake with (laughs) the images of a very um neat boxy suited cinderella but coming out of a pumpkin coach (laughs) you know and this is an advert for shell petroleum and it's just before the disney film i think it's the late 40s Um, You know, you look at women's cosmetics, and you find that Revlon is advertising a lipstick in a shade of Cinderella's pumpkin orange, and that um, you know, no, I'm I'm not making this up; it's it's the case, and
0: (laughs) that is pretty remarkable.
1: (laughs) And and, that you know, perfume is being marketed in a in a faux glass slipper. Um, You know, it's everywhere. If you flick through a woman's magazine or anything like that of the 40s and 50s i can guarantee you'll find references to cinderella i mean it's overdone almost it's fantastically powerful i like to think um that what you said just a minute ago is is right and that it's actually becoming irrelevant now that it's. I mean, I know that recently we've had the Disney live action Cinderella and people will keep on trying because it's, a, you know, they see it as a beloved, fa- uh, not a fairy story. Well, it is a fairy story, isn't it, really? A beloved sort of fairy tale, a beloved tale, and always appealing to girls. But you can see how it's got jazzed up. The more recent ones try and make Cinderella a bit less kind of pathetic. <laughs> 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 and, you know and it, it's i mean you know you look at those i've seen them referred to as the cold war disney princesses and they are a bit wet <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. you know as they yeah. do the house with little bluebirds singing around them and you know they're they're kind of a bit innocent and hopeless um, and you know so what I would hope is that you know new myths new fairy stories which have more about them that resonates with the conditions of young women today will come to the fore and I think that's where, where Frozen steps in you know because no yeah. one expected Frozen to take off the way it did but you've got daughters haven't you so you know yeah it happened
0: I mean it became... It, yeah, it did. It, all right, we'll come. And we'll talk about that in a moment, definitely. Um, and and then, as you say in the book, in the late sixties and early seventies, uh, it all kind of falls apart because theory and practice have become uh, so uh, divergent. And you call this a process of uncoupling. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I think
1: um, you know, there's been a lot written about what's called. Or sometimes referred to and sometimes contested as the sexual revolution of the sixties and seventies, um, but you you can't ignore the importance of the birth control pill um, and what that did to reshaping to reshape women's dreams. I mean, it massively impacted, um, you know, because it meant that well for men and for women that you you didn't need to defer sexual activity anymore. Um, you know, and, and the whole concept of premarital sex, you know, starts to sound a bit old fashioned. Um, I think we take it too much for granted today. I think young women don't always realize just how terrifying it was when you couldn't really control your fertility mm-hmm. um, and how girls used to panic, you know, if their period didn't arrive and, you know, and they weren't married. And I mean, the absolute terror and panic. You can you can get some clue to it if you read novels of the period. Um, in England, and I, I imagine in the States too, there was this very peculiar film which is you can still watch on YouTube called Prudence and the Pill. Um, and watching that is just mm-hmm. amazing because it's so dated now. But it makes you realise just how shocking it was for contemporaries. And people thought that morality would collapse because um, it was becoming dissociated from sexual activity. I mean, in that film, they just keep saying, you know, um you you know you can't have um sex, you can't have that sort of thing without having to pay the price, but of course increasingly you could um so the idea of you know love and marriage going together like a horse and carriage and love and sex going together always and and sex always leaving leading to marriage and so on all those couplings those kind of um assume they always went together things started to collapse and people had to rethink um, and just and so on and also as well as I mean so the impact of the contraceptive pill was absolutely massive and allowed people to start thinking about sexual pleasure and allowed them to start it allowed women to not have to leave university you mentioned this at the beginning not have to leave college mm-hmm. they fell in love you know they could wait for a few years um and they, they didn't need to defer their engagements or their marriages. You know, they could they could start to think about planning their lives more. I think it, it gave women a huge sense of autonomy um, that they could control reproduction in that way. In fact, if they don't have that, I just don't see how you can, I don't see how women can act as autonomous human beings without being able to control their fertility. Um But these days, of course, it's taken for granted so much more, although abortion Uh is, is, as you know, very contested still. Um, But, you know, that sense that you could control and plan and that therefore you could enter higher education a bit like a man was a massive leap forward. It's really hard to imagine now um and also a lot of the shame of illegitimacy has gone in fact in britain it's pretty much gone altogether since these days most well not most people but very large numbers of people don't get married anyway they just cohabit i mean illegitimacy in england in the 50s was the source of the most tremendous social shame and now it's barely it it's not a concept that has any meaning i mean <laughs> You know, amongst my children's generation, it's incredibly common to cohabit and have children now, and not to bother with marriage. So that's that's a huge shift. Um, the other thing that has to be factored in, I think, uh, with all this uncoupling and changing, is the the um, life expectancy stuff. Um, you know, if you marry before you're twenty, when you're say twenty, and life expectancy is what 75, 80 I mean. That's a very long time to find absolutely everything you need in one sexual partner. Um, (laughs) For a lot of people, it's too long. Um, And I know, I mean, one of the authorities I find very inspiring and intelligent today is um, Esther Perel, who lives in the, in the States. She's a psychotherapist of Belgian origin and she's, She's recorded a number of TED Talks um, with titles like The Secret to Desire in Long-Term Relationships and and so on. And she's, she's wonderful because she looks at people's unhappinesses and difficulties in relationships in a broad historical context and points out that, you know, the expectations on marriage, which you mentioned earlier, are now massive, absolutely massive. Because, you know, not only is a heterosexual pairing supposed, it's supposed to bring you security, you know, um, total sexual satisfaction, um, the possibility of raising a family happily, self-fulfillment, you know, sexual fulfillment, spiritual fulfillment, and all over, you know, a period of about, 50, 60 years, which is twice what lives used to (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, the expectations and also the expectations of fidelity, because interestingly, attitudes to adultery have hardened rather than the reverse, even though the practice of it, is very widespread so you know it leaves people with with a lot of um problems really about how to organize their emotional lives and how to make sense of them you know you can't always organize them you try um so you know the shift the shifts in relationships heterosexual relationships and i I confine myself to those because basically the subject is already too big (laughs) (laughs) Although, although you can have interesting comparisons, um, you, you know, if, if you bring in gay relationships as well. But, I mean, the expectations of love and intimacy that are now placed on marriage or cohabitation and coupling are so immense that, you know, for many people, they're too immense.
0: <laughs> um, so- just, just to return to the statistics for a second, is it it and pardon my ignorance <clears throat> or my bad memory, is it the 1960s and 70s in which we start to see the age of marriage rise, the rate of divorce rise, mm. and the mm. rate of marriage mm. decline? decline it, yes. Are they coterminous? A, a bit
1: later. I think I think uh-huh. the age of marriage starts to rise after the 70s. It stops going down. Into the 60s, it's still going down. In fact, the median low age of marriage is about 1965 in britain um after the 70s with the pill it starts to go up cohabitation goes up divorce goes up as well but that's partly because of the legislation about divorce um it becomes easier and a lot of the women that had married in the 50s with 50s type expectations bring divorce cases in the 70s and and so on so um it, it looks like divorce is peaking amongst that generation who wanted this very conventional marriage of the 1950s and married very young mm-hmm. um people don't agree what's happening to the divorce rate today it's partly because you can't really measure it because so many people now just cohabit so if mm-hmm. if the actual numbers of divorces um if the number of divorces is going down which i think it is it doesn't mean that breakup is less common because people aren't marrying in the first place you see so there is this huge debate about it some people say oh because couples are often not getting together till later in life now there's more chance of those relationships lasting but it's contentious particularly
0: in the states actually you mm-hmm. have a answer because people can't give it yeah no that's exactly right um i have many friends who cohabitate uh, let, let's shoot forward to the 80s. And I'm thinking of the expression, which you hear a lot sometimes, ironically, having it all. And this is, of course, Helen Gurley Brown in 1982. <clears throat> what is having it all? And how? who gave birth to it? And, you know, yeah. she didn't want the book to be called that. <clears throat> her
1: publisher pushed her to, to call it that. Um yeah, because, you know, she didn't have it all. I mean, H- Helen Gurley Brown didn't have children and she often thought that it would be difficult to have a very high-powered um, career and have children, actually. Um, but, yeah, it's used, I think, it's it's used as a stick to beat feminism, um, to beat feminists a bit. You know, they want too much. They're greedy. They want it all. I think um, the, Susan Faludi wrote this, this book called Backlash, which is wonderful in the 1980s, about how a lot of people were saying feminism has gone too far women just want it all you know it's unrealistic you can't have it all you can't have you know a perfect husband a perfect home life perfect children perfect career and everything you know you get and there's a rash of films isn't there in the um in the 80s about that you know about these kind of driven manic career women who <laughs> you know who, who kind mm-hmm. of you know wear wear cutting edge clothes and wipe off the baby sick and, you know, go into the office and try to behave like men. And, you know, they're desperate to look like sort of... um, uh, the word is often glamazons you know kind of glam- <laughs> to, you know red nail polish perfect demeanour and then they kind of you know they they shove the kids with the nanny or the into the crash, and they try and pretend and they go bonkers you know they make lists they make lists you know cut children's toenails you know get birthday presents don't forget to sleep with husband you know and <laughs> <laughs> it all starts to collapse and the people who probably thought feminism was onto were, was was a bit too much anyway, sort of nod their heads sagely and say, well, you can't have it all, you have to make choices. And then they love it when people write novels, you know, where career women with massive success say, I tried to have everything, but my home life was suffering, you know. And I've yeah. now decided to give up on my high-powered job and bake sponge cakes, and the kids are really happy. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, my yeah. husband loves me again i mean it's rubbish <laughs> it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's used i think it's hyped it's used as a way of kind of beating women i mean the answer to this is to reach i think Oh, God, I could say so much. I do actually remember when I had children myself in the 80s, sometimes feeling a bit overwhelmed. And I remember once coming in and slamming books down on the table and saying, right, that's it. That's it. i had to give up work. I can't do it. I'll just be a housewife. And I remember my two little girls looking at me and saying, we don't want a mummy that's (laughs) just... bless them it's probably the nicest thing they ever said to me yeah that's <laughs> great that's a great story um but, but i mean the answer to this is not you know to get women out of the workplace because you're not going to do that now anyway but to try and make it easier for people to have families and jobs and of course covid hasn't helped has it i mean people stuck at home with young children i don't know them murdered each other
0: that's yeah. them how. Um <laughs> I I wanted to I wanted to talk about an expression you use that I had never really heard before. Um you say you talk about singles culture and it was kind of a, a light bulb went off above my head because I realized that's what I see all around me now is singles culture. Everything is pretty much oriented towards singles. Mm. Even people who are married are singles. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's
1: interesting, it? <laughs> it's just interesting how that's a big shift now. Um, I mean in the past if you lived alone you know people thought you were a bit sad (laughs) (laughs) you were a bit of a failure you know you were a kind of miserable man sort of you know thawing out your tv dinners in front of the (laughs) TV. if you were a woman you know you would be knitting with your kind of Cat on your lap, watching the box, and dreaming about what you haven't got. I mean, it, it was a sort of deprivation notion. Singledom was like failure, wasn't it?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> but then, you know, with the rise of all all the TV um, soap dramas, you know, Friends and and um, Bridget Jones and everything, and uh, of the eighties, I mean, it, it starts to shift a bit. and And dating culture and dating applications. Um, you know, the idea of being a young person in the city starts to acquire a glamour that I don't think yeah. it you know more so than it had before. And it, it stops it it looks like a more and more enviable lifestyle to some rather <laughs> rather than um a dep- a deprived thing. I mean it doesn't mean you can't have relationships, but um It doesn't. The deprivation model doesn't fit, and the studies that have been done in the states, particularly, show that once people get a certain amount of income, they choose to live alone rather than it being a sad, a sad sort of story of failure. They sometimes choose to live alone. Um, you, You know. And you can see why (laughs) if you've got a certain amount of of space to yourself and you can afford it, it can be nice. And some people choose to couple up whilst keeping their own flats, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes even when people marry, they decide that they want to keep their own property. So, uh, you know. Um, there are new ways of living, and these these are sort of creeping up behind us, really, and getting and getting bigger than we realise. And I think that the old the idea that you know once you marry you have to be in a suburban area and live in a certain way is beginning to to fall apart a bit. Um, so singles culture, I mean, it still poses problems for women. I mean, it, you, you get this if you look at Friends or or, or um, Bridget Jones or um, you know, all all the other soap operas that deal with this stuff. I mean, women knocking 35 who want to have children and haven't met the right man and don't know what to do about it. Um, And men who, you know, are supposed to be frightened to to commit and so on. Um, I mean, those are sort of... well well-known tropes but mm-hmm. on the other hand um there are new there are new patterns coming up i mean that um a professor in in cambridge who who looks in england um who looks at non-traditional relationships drew my attention to a new trend which which I think is quite fascinating. Instead of internet dating to find a heterosexual romance partner, there's evidently a growing trend for young couples who want to parent looking for um, you know, a partner who would co-parent with them, but not necessarily expect, you know, the whole romance thing. Now, at one level you might think, ooh, that's a bit weird. Um, and I you can immediately start seeing the problems, but it's actually it's a bit like a reversion to the past situation where you know if you go back to say the 18th century or probably beyond you know um you might marry for to have families and for dynastic reasons and um you know for property reasons but romance and love because they're less reliable would not be part of that deal you know it didn't mean they didn't exist and of course it certainly didn't mean that there weren't problems but you know marriage was a stable property and kinship thing and having children was part of that and love and romance are just harder to control because they happen sometimes without you being you know able to control it and And, you know, they take second place. So this new trend to to use the Internet to find somebody who wants to co-parent with you, you know, isn't absolutely new. And it's kind of intriguing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I definitely see what you mean. Um, One of the things I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about is the way in which, mm, I'm not quite sure how to say it, romance or a desire for romance persists even in, sil- in in singles culture. and Oh, yeah. And and so, for, for example, I give the example of my daughters. Uh, they, their expectations are nothing like Cinderella in terms of mating. Let's put it that way. But they care a lot about the way they look. I mean, really a lot. Like they think that they spend a lot of their time on this. um Can you talk a little bit about how that kind of femininity, I think I might call it, mm-hmm. survives in singles mm-hmm. culture?
1: Well, it does, doesn't it? Very much. Well, as I started when we started recording, to tell you that you know, the first book I wrote when I came out of full-time teaching was this book on glamour because I was interested. I mean, there are two views. Um, one view is that women kind of make themselves sex objects by being obsessed by their looks, um, and the uh, but the view I wanted to put forward was slightly different from that. I mean, partly because I've always been interested in clothes and makeup myself. Um, you know, as an aesthetic thing. And I didn't want to see that as wholly, um, as as totally oppressed, you know, I, I, because I don't think it is. Um, so the thing about little girls and, you know, it verges into discussions of princess culture, but also being concerned about how they look. It's a balanced thing, isn't it? You don't want them to be obsessed. I mean, I remember from having my own daughters, but you, you don't want to undermine it totally. Right. Um, And, you know, in that sense, I think it's probably not all that different from little boys, you know, except, of course, that there's the whole culture of makeup and princessy stuff, um, which can be overwhelming. I mean, I don't know how old your daughters are. I I remember when mine were, you know, under, say, 11, under 12, I kind of, I think, you know... used to discourage it a bit barbie dolls you know but but then it's what they do with the barbie dolls really and they often did quite interesting things with them. yeah yeah no i can you know and and if they really wanted to dress up in princessy stuff i let them do it but we would have discussions about it and i do take this on a bit in the book because i know that parents can feel completely overwhelmed by their by their daughters just kind of covering themselves in sparkles and pink net um and sort of swanning around being princessy but I mean, some of the girls wear princessy stuff with trainers and they sort of stand there. Yeah. So, you know, I think you don't have to knock it absolutely as, as a parent. Well, you can't anyway because, you, as you know, as a parent, you can't totally control your children, least of all their imaginations and their fantasies. Um, but, you know, you can make them aware. So you can say, you know, those those glass slippers are stupid. You're going <laughs> to you're gonna yeah. hurt your feet if you wear glass slippers, you know, or... Yeah. or or high heels and so trainers are much nicer but if you want to you know if you want to sashay around in 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 a white neck skirt with little diamante blobs on you know then that can look quite pretty you know so I think it's a case of balance really um and I think that you know the the concern with female appearance is so too you know it, it you know, nobody wants women to stop caring about what they look, look like. And I, I'm a sucker. I wear makeup. It's always been a problem for me as a feminist. Probably why I wrote the glamour book was to actually point out that even though I liked makeup and even though I liked clothes, I could still be feminist. You know. Um, so I think that it, it is balance, and it's it's you know being able to do both. But I think you know it's 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 one thing it's not the only thing I think you know for me the center of feminism is about having interesting work to do as well as being interested in love and children and romance mm-hmm, and
0: mm-hmm. interesting. yeah and that, that that brings us directly to frozen and w- one of the things that people may not know because they haven't watched as much frozen as I have <laughs> and I've watched a lot of it um <laughs> and Mulan and Brave and frozen <laughs> Yes. In Frozen, there is no marriage. I know there isn't Frozen <laughs> Two, isn't there? I was I, was, I wrote the book. Just, I wrote the
1: book just as Frozen Two was coming out, and I added yeah. a footnote to it. I mean, it's all right because it's quite obvious that uh, is this a spoiler for people who haven't seen Frozen Two?
0: Oh, are there people? Well, yeah, maybe they haven't seen Frozen Two, but if you don't know about Frozen, you've all been right. hiding in a cave. Okay. Because, yeah, um, there's no marriage in
1: Frozen, that's right. And I, I think Frozen is really a, a very moving film for little girls, really, because it, it it doesn't subscribe to this daft notion that you find a prince and, you know, that's it, that's the end of your life. It's It actually puts women's, the girls... Elsa and Anna, who are not perfect, centre stage as actors in their own lives. And it's quite clear a man is not going to be an ending for them. And in fact, the men in Frozen are a bit awful, aren't they? There's a lot of kind of juddery old patriarchs who are in it for the wrong reasons. You know, they're a bit hopeless, really. And the prince that Anna has a certain flirtation with turns out to be a
0: bit... Have a love rat? <laughs> Do you have a love rat? In- <laughs> no, we don't. But we'll start to use it. <laughs> we'll bring it over.
1: <laughs> um, and you know, the nicest guy is is the Ice Man, who's you know not a prince at all, but has respect for Anna and actually does genuinely care about her. But they have a sort of comradely relationship, which which you know. Can develop but um it's based on mutual respect it's not about a kind of helpless clingy prince uh, g- helpless clingy girl falling for a handsome prince at all and also the relationship between the sisters is good um you know it's quite moving actually in fact it's very moving i mean particularly when you know anna anna is all moody and 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 withdrawn and difficult and else um no elsa is moody and withdrawn and difficult mm-hmm. anna is trying to get her to come and build a snowman i mean you know it's ter- it's kind of really poignant that because it's like what happens between a lot of sisters you know that there are sort of little jealousies and little difficulties, but there's a deep bond between them. And I think that's something that a lot of girls with sisters will experience or will have experienced. Um, I, I, I see it every day. Well, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. exactly. And, I mean, you know, and the relationships between the women are really important and and, there's, and the girls are centre stage in their own lives. And, you know, we know that there's not going to be a man that is an ending, Um even in frozen two you don't get that
0: sense yeah yeah um i i to uh, I, I have a final question i'm a bit hesitant to ask it because it puts <laughs> it puts you on the spot a little bit um and also as a historian this is not usually the kind of question that historians <laughs> answer uh but h- how can i help my daughters navigate what might generically be called mating because i suspect they mm. will want to have mates what what should I say to them? What? What? <laughs> I'm at sea here. I really am. I don't know what to say to them.
1: I think you know that. Oh God, this is really putting me on the spot. But I mean, one of the things I've learned it's quite a good idea to to find men that like women, <laughs> <laughs> and that and who actually like them doing well. Um, and and the same for women. It's it's good to find men. Um, You know, I mean, this works both ways. I think mating works best if you have a a mutual respect and delight in each other's achievements. It's not a sense that the man's achievements are all that matter and, you know, the women can can just kind of keep house it's really getting pleasure in 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 each other's development that seems to me a very important part of of happy relationships but there's a sense in which we can't control our kids lives i would want probably no. my girls exactly what you want for yours um you know you just have to kind of in the end they have to live their own lives and you have to kind of cross your fingers and or pray or whatever and be there. But um, I think self-respect and mutual respect are really important things.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you completely, especially about not being able really to control them. I mean, when I had very young children, I remember having the realization that only the kid can eat the broccoli. Like there's like, there's not anything you can do it, it I mean you're not going to force feed your kid broccoli they've no, got to they eat the know. broccoli right that's know. that's up to them that's an act of will oh, <laughs> so yeah they're, yeah, they're on their own to, path yeah
1: that used to so challenge me that used to so challenge me I mean particularly with with one of my daughters who wouldn't eat anything and <laughs>
0: Like, yeah. You well, think, oh, what can I do? That's nothing is what you can do. They yeah. <laughs> grew up okay in the end. <laughs> well, Carol, this is this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. Um, let me tell everyone that we've been talking to Carol Dyehouse about her terrific book, Love Lives from Cinderella to Frozen. It's out from Oxford University Press this year, twenty twenty one. I encourage you to go out and get the book. Carol, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for a very entertaining interview, Marshall. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Bye-bye.